Hey, it's Doug, and this is microcast number 92. Three articles today, why fitter people drink more alcohol. Uh, the second one is, why does the sunlight come from the north in shaded relief maps? And third, your phone is your private space. So the first one is an article in Outside magazine, and it, it's based on a study which was of 38,000 healthy patients ranging in age from 20 to 86. And these, what they found was that moderately and highly fit people were far more likely to be moderate or heavy drinkers than less fit people. They found that for women, being highly fit more than doubled the odds of being a moderate or heavy drinker, and for men, it increased the odds by 63%. So these weren't elite athletes, um, but the question is, why is there this association between exercise and drinking? And, quote, the paper's authors cautiously suggest that the former might cause the latter, i.e. the exercise might cause the drinking, perhaps due to the psychological phenomenon called the licensing effect, i.e. when you feel like you've done something good, you reward yourself by allowing you to do yourself to do something bad. And this is the interesting bit, and so I'll just quote the article. Quote, but there's another school of thought that suggests both exercise and alcohol use are influenced by the same set of personality traits. A 2014 study from the University of Houston researcher Lee Leisure, for example, linked both exercise and drinking behaviour to higher levels of a sensation-seeking, a trait that, in turn, is influenced by how your brain's reward circuitry processes dopamine. End of quote. Wow, so imagine that. Imagine that is the case, that the way that your brain is wired means that you're likely to seek out that kind of runner's high that you get with endorphin releases um, when you're running, and, and also seeking solace and alcohol uh, even on a, on a smaller level I find that really really interesting the second article why does the sunlight come from the north in shaded relief maps um, I should have noticed this a long time ago because I spend a decent amount of time looking at maps when I'm planning routes and stuff for, for going out into the mountains so basically because we in the northern hemisphere get most of our sunlight coming from the south, you'd imagine that shaded relief maps should show the things being lit from the south. But, as the author points out, we don't make maps to be necessarily completely accurate. We make maps for human perception. And as they point out, if you make it look like something is lit from the kind of the south on a map, then the way that human perception works is that because we're used to things being lit from the top when you're looking at stuff, um, it all looks wrong and you, you kind of... It, terrain gets inverted. What looks like a valley looks like a hill, etc. So as they say at the end, um, it's true in the northern hemisphere, the sun mostly comes from the southern half of the sky, so the sun placement in most shaded relief maps in the northern hemisphere isn't realistic. But we make maps for humans, and this is how the human brain works. So moving on from human physiology onto um, something which is an extension of, of you as a person, your, your phone, what I'm recording this on right now. Your phone is your private space by Connor Friedersdorf in The Atlantic. So by now, you probably will have heard about Apple trying to scan for child porn on photos which are uploaded to iCloud and all of the fury around that. This is quite a a nice example of someone writing in a very sober and very 
straightforward way about what could happen if we keep going down this road. So I'm going to read quite an extended quotation from this, because it's well written. Quote, if the matter ended there, it would have been of little. It would be of little consequence, good or bad. All but the least technologically savvy predators would simply deactivate iCloud and avoid getting caught, sharply reducing the public benefit of this change. As for future costs, however, Apple's proposed approach embraced at least three worrisome premises: that we don't fully own the devices that store so much private information about us; that tech giants that sell us those devices can ethically load them with spyware and that the evil deeds of a tiny fraction of users justify the mass surveillance of data that millions of totally innocent users put on their phone. If Apple accepts those premises, and most of its customers go along without objecting, then future iPhones will almost inevitably scan for more than child porn. The logic of catching a few evil actors by denying the cloak of privacy to everyone will inexorably spread to more and more areas that powerful societal factions want to target. Some of those factions will themselves be evil. Many are likely to be illiberal or repressive. As Edward Snowden, who famously revealed the NSA's mass surveillance of innocent people, asked on Substack, quote, What happens when a party in India demands they start scanning for memes associated with a separate separatist movement? What happens when the UK demands they scan for a library of terrorist imagery? How long do we have left before the iPhone in your pocket begins quietly filing reports about encountering extremist political material or about your presence at a civil disturbance. End of quote. Geopolitical pressures of this sort are unavoidable. Multiple governments are already moving to obliterate or significantly undermine digital privacy rights, even in liberal democracies. This summer alone, analysts at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, a leading digital civil, civil liberties advocacy organisation, have raised alarms about new or proposed laws in India, Brazil, and Canada. End of quote. So this, I find this disturbing. Um, so there's two other technologies which are potentially problematic here. Um, the one first one is Bluetooth scanning of devices which are next to each other, which is the way that contact tracing was done badly in the UK and other places. And yes, that was anonymous in terms of which devices came into contact with each other, but there's ways in which that can be de-anonymized quite easily. So you can see which people gather together, for example. Of course, you can do that by GPS location as well. The other one, which has been mooted in the UK, but it seems to be pressing it, people seem to be pressing ahead with in Australia, is requiring people to be um, de-anonymized on social media. So having to have a driving license or a passport to open a social media account. And this is politicians' heavy-handed way of dealing with people who are, for example, racist to the English football team or say things which aren't like bullying on, online. Now, all of these things are bad and should not happen. But again, just like the example of surveilling everyone to catch a few people, we shouldn't get rid of things which are really valuable, like being anonymous or pseudo-anonymous online, just so that we can stop people bullying people online. It's the behaviour we want to change. Um, it's not the the kind of identity and civil liberties we want to we want to uh, diminish. So they're the three articles today. Um, until next time, that has been Thought Shop Microcast number ninety two.